We're coming back into this sermon series on salvation history, looking at the monarchy, the kings. If you're reading your Bible from start to finish, you get to these books of Samuel, first and second Samuel, and then Kings, first and second Kings. And then if you're reading along and read first and second Chronicles, you get a little deja vu because it's a lot of the same stories in Chronicles, but they're written later and written from a little bit different perspective. But it's the story of the establishment of the monarchy, the period of the kings. And begins not with a king, but with the last of the judges, the last of these sort of prophetic rulers or leaders in Israel, a man named Samuel. Samuel is born to a mother who can't have children and uh, ends up working for the prophet Eli and then becomes a prophet and a leader on his own. And uh, the people at one point, as he's getting older, call Samuel and, and want him to assign to them and call for them, anoint for them a king, a king for Israel. They, they look around at all their neighbors and say, well, all of our neighbors have kings. We should have a king too. Samuel takes their request to God, but, but God warns the people through Samuel. You're not going to like having a king because a king is going to make you do all kinds of things. He's going to take taxes. He's going to make your people be a part of his military and a part of his household. He's, he's going to take of your fields and take of all kinds of things. But yet, the people, uh, the people do insist with Samuel that they need a king. So Samuel uh, takes that message back to God, and God says, go ahead, give them their king. One of the worst things God can do, by the way, is give you what you ask him for and what you beg him for. Uh, when God tells you no, he normally means no, and he normally means no for a reason, and he means it because he knows what you're asking for isn't going to be what's best for you. So God relents, and he gives the people the king that they want. And Samuel anoints a man named Saul. Saul is initially a pretty good king. He uh, fights off the Ammonites. He leads the people in battle. But, but very quickly, Saul becomes more focused on himself and his own kingdom than God's. He allows certain people to live in battle, mainly for his own benefit. He starts to collect resources and wealth and uh, becomes afraid to lose those things. And so uh, Samuel gets a sense, gets a message from God that God has lost favor with Saul and that Samuel is meant to anoint a new king. So God tells him to go to this little town called Bethlehem to the house of Jesse and uh, Jesse was a uh, relative of Ruth and Boaz in that area. And so Samuel goes to the, the household and, and sees, uh, sees all the different sons, but none of them are the right one. So he says, you've got to have another son around here. And Jesse says, yes, I've got my youngest, David, who is in the fields. They go and get David, and indeed, Samuel is called by God to anoint David, even in his youth as the next king of Israel. But Saul is still living, so David is not king yet. 
Saul is continuing to lead the people and struggling. He's struggling at this point in time with the Philistines who have come from the Mediterranean coast and are coming towards Jerusalem. And it's not good. There's a standoff in the, the Shephelah, these valleys leading up past the coast. And uh, the Philistines send out their great leader, their great uh, battle, uh, battle warrior, Goliath. And challenges, rather than fight both armies, he says, just send out your champion and I will fight from our side and we'll see whose God is really God. Any battle in those days wasn't really about just the battle. It's about whose God is really God. Okay? Who has the true gods that they're worshiping? And Saul, instead of being brave and leading them into battle or, or picking a champion to send out into battle, sits back and is fearful. But David comes to the battle site, to this valley where there's this standoff, to bring food and supplies to his brothers and sees what's going on. And he is willing, even as a youth, to fight this giant. Well, Saul, maybe as an act of giving up, gives David the ability to go do that. He tries to put David in his armor. Again, the question is, why isn't Saul putting on his own armor to trust God and go into battle? But David understands Saul's armor doesn't fit him. He goes with just a sling and he does slay Goliath. His reputation grows as being a great warrior. He gathers around himself these mighty men, other warriors to take part in these great feats of battle. But the problem is Saul then starts to see him as a threat and he's a legitimate threat to his kingship. He's been anointed as king. Finally, when Saul dies, David does become king. And, and rather than being feisty after fleeing with Saul for so long, David actually mourns the loss of Saul, uh, knowing that Saul was God's chosen king. And then it was David's time, and, and David gets to make a new covenant with God. Let me read to you from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Part of this covenant that the Lord makes with David. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David has promised peace. He has promised prosperity. He's promised this great place. Um, but he's also promised that part of his lineage will rule forever. That's an important promise that we'll come back to. Part of the place, the household of David, involves capturing a Jebusite city that would be known as Jerusalem. And he wants to build a temple there to God, a permanent place, but God won't let David build this temple because he was a warrior king and has blood on his hands. He saves that honor for Solomon. But David, even though he's called a man after God's own heart, is not perfect. He's sinful. 
And one, te- one time, as he is supposed to go out to war in the spring, but, but instead he doesn't, he's kind of moping around on his temple. He sees Bathsheba bathing on uh, a rooftop down the hill from his palace. David goes and uh, f- sends for that girl, brings her into his bed, and then has her husband killed, whacked Godfather style, really, sends him to the front of the front lines of a battle and makes sure that he is cut off and he gets killed in battle. David, even though he was this great leader, is still sinful. The problem of sin remains with him. Eventually, David is, is uh, replaced by his son Solomon. And Solomon does build this great temple. Whereas the Ark of the Covenant had to travel all over the place, the the tabernacle was just a temporary place, Solomon builds on this temple mount a temple, a permanent place for God's presence to be established on earth. He brings a great time of peace and prosperity to the land. But guess what? Solomon is not perfect either. Solomon ends up... uh, bringing about a lot of the peace by marrying all these different women or taking women as his concubine. But as he takes these women, he also takes a lot of their gods and a lot of their worship practices. So much so that after Solomon, the, temp- the, the kingdom of Israel is divided. And from then on, there's not one king or one area. There's really two. The north gets called Israel. And so when you read your Bible, it gets a little confusing that you have a king of Israel, but you have another Israeli king. But but the south area is called Judah. And so you'll hear that language in the Bible, some of Israel and Judah. But for a while, there's two different kingdoms. Uh, Jeroboam, one of the servants and leaders under Solomon, takes control of Israel. And Rehoboam... The son of Solomon takes over the southern part. And from then on, you get a number of different kings, kings in the north and kings in the south. Some of them are bad. Uh, Ahab and uh, his wife Jezebel, not good. They get into fights with Elijah and Elisha. In 740 BC, the Assyrians, which were the, the power of the day, come and destroy most of the nation of Israel. Uh, that's the northern part at the time and take a lot of their people into exile, into slavery, remove them from the land. The southern part, the nation of Judah, uh, remains. And King Hezekiah, who's one of the good kings, um, fortifies the city of Jerusalem, prepares for battle, but encourages the people that God is going to fight on their behalf. Uh, and, And that's the way it happens. Sennacherib, the leader of the Assyrians, comes but an an angel goes through the camp and kills a bunch of the men, so they flee and don't even attack Jerusalem. But still, the people have struggles. They don't always follow God. You get a number of bad kings. You get one really good king uh, towards the end of the nation of Judah, Josiah. He becomes king when he's eight years old and rules for some 31 years. During his reign, when they're working in the temple, they find an old scroll uh, tucked behind a drawer or a shelf somewhere. Um, Most people think it it was a copy of the book of Deuteronomy. 
And it finds the people sort of coming back and coming back to worship God. But it doesn't last. And Josiah, his great reforms in the, in the people, uh, doesn't stick around because Josiah ends up getting killed up near the city of Megiddo in a battle in the valley of Armageddon or the Jezreel Valley. Sometime after Josiah's reign, uh, the Babylonians come and in 586 BC, they do take over Judah, destroy the temple, destroy all of Jerusalem, and the kingdoms of God, uh, of Israel, are no more. In all, there were 42 kings, 42 kings, 42 rulers that came to power, three over a united monarchy, and then the rest over either Israel or Judah. So the kings uh, don't really work out. In the end, the sin problem remains the problem. Now Israel gets a lot of hope from the kings, hope of a good king, a good rule, the establishment of God's presence at the temple, um, peace and prosperity. And so there are, there's a lot of hope out of, that come out of the kings, a, a lot of look ahead to where God is going to move in salvation history. But of course, there's also sin and selfishness. And the kings bring the problem with them. In fact, just like judges, there's really this continuing downward spiral that sin keeps getting worse and worse. But at the same time, there's hope. Let me read to you from Psalm 47, thinking about God as king. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout of joy, the Lord with a sound of trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. So the idea becomes God is the king. God is the ultimate ruler. And then as the prophets start talking about the Messiah, this coming one that's going to save Israel, they start to use this image of kingship. So much so that there's a promise that that king would, that that Messiah would actually come from David's line. That there would be a fulfillment to this promise that someone from the line of David would reign forever. Now Israel was hoping for a king, for a ruler, a king just like David. But we know that Jesus came. That he was born in Bethlehem. That he was from the house and lineage of David. That he rides in like a king on Palm Sunday. Almost to the place where Solomon himself was anointed as king. That he dies in the city of David. Wearing a crown, but but this is a crown of thorns on his head. That he has a sign over his head, 
on the cross when he dies, calling him the king of the Jews. Jesus is, is not just a man after God's own heart. He is a man with God's own heart. All those promises of the kings, all the hopes of the kings are fulfilled in Jesus. And all their flaws, well, Jesus doesn't have those flaws. In fact, his death and resurrection fix those flaws. And then if you keep reading the story to the very end, to the book of Revelation, you see promises of Jesus coming. And what is he coming like? Like a king coming to rule this world. Is Jesus reigning in your life? Is he ruling? Is he king? And is he Lord? One of the things about dark times, storms, these, these times where our lives find a lot of upheaval, like we're going through right now, is that those times expose our hearts. They expose our hearts. They show us what are we really hoping in? Who's really king? Who's really in charge for our lives? And there are a lot of people, as we're in this time of social distancing and quarantine, there are a lot of people panicking, a lot of people worrying. But I think what's really happening is that these times are exposing their hearts. That, um, that it's showing who's really in charge of their lives. And you know who's really in charge in their lives? They are. That's the whole sin problem. That we want to be king, we want to be God, we want to be in charge. And, and the problem is, when you get to a situation like this, you realize how much you're really not in control. How much you are really not ruling the way you think you are. And in these moments where our hearts are exposed, we can start to discover, no, we need to put God in charge. We need to let Jesus be king and be ruler, and be Lord. And that's not easy to do. And I know that it's not easy to do because it was really hard for Israel. It was really hard for the disciples. It's been really hard for all of us. But can we make Jesus our King, our ruler, and our Lord? That's the question for us today. Let us pray. Lord, I thank you that you are King, that you are ruler, that you are Lord. Reign in us. Don't let fear reign in us. Don't let us reign in our lives. Be king, be ruler, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So wherever you go, may Jesus lead you as your king and as your ruler. Find peace in him. Amen.